All right. All right, all right. Good evening, everybody. I, uh, <clears throat> I trust that you can hear me okay. Um, and uh, everyone on the Internet uh, can hear me as well. Uh, welcome to the first night of 36. 36 consecutive lessons through 52 catechism questions. Um, obviously, we'll still follow our semester format with um, semester breaks and nights of worship and business meetings and things like that. But there will be 36 sessions marching in 2024 through 52 questions of the catechesis. Um, <clears throat> there's a few things that I like to do for uh, every sermon, and, um, and that's to attempt to write a single summary statement. And often that statement is the first thing I, uh, I say. Uh, and in my attempt to write a summary statement, I kept coming back to just one verse. And that's this from Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. It reads simply, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Yeah. And so, that is the summary statement. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The word catechism simply means oral teaching. And so the education can be gained through a catechism, no matter your literacy level. And in the Protestant Reformation era, when the catechesis began in the church, um, large swaths of the population, especially as compared to today, uh, were illiterate. And so a series of questions and answers that were memorizable uh, represented a very efficient and practical means of education. Uh, you might say that a catechism is simply a doctrinal statement in the form of questions and answers. That's really what it is. It's a, it's a long-form doctrinal statement of belief simply broken down into the form of questions and answers. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, a little history. Here, let me jump this. Here we go. Uh, we'll talk history, purpose, and then we'll talk uh, question number one. Can everybody, is this okay? Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I, okay, all right. Obviously, um, as you know, we're in here tonight because our lights are being done next door. So uh, we should be back in there on Sunday morning and I'll have my big pulpit back and uh, you'll have your comfy pews back, all right? History. History. Um, why did the people of the medieval church era give their money to, quote, spring their loved ones from purgatory? Why did they do that? Uh, why did they obey when the priest said, take this pilgrimage to go see this relic, give Money to buy your forgiveness, say these recited prayers, do these actions, these works of penance. Why did they obey when they were told to do these things? And the answer is simple they just didn't know any better. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. 
And they couldn't open their Bibles and challenge the priest's instructions who said, if you give money to build my new, you know, impressive palace or whatever, um, then your dead relative can be sprung early from purgatory. They couldn't open their Bible and say, actually, it doesn't say that anywhere. (laughs) There was no Bible, right? There was the text, there was the scriptures, but there was no mass production, of course, like what we have today. Beyond that, the scriptures were kept from the people. They were not uh, uh, translated into their native tongue. The interpretation and understanding of the Bible was deemed too lofty for you commoners. So only us learned priest types have access, we'll tell you what it says, we'll tell you what it means, just give us your money. And it's a, it's a terrible and tragic evolution of the church from Acts chapter 2 to, you know, the 14, 1500s Europe. And, and that whole concept of the scriptures being uh, too lofty for you and needing to be kept from you, the church... It is literally the exact opposite of what the book of Acts applauds. Listen to this from Acts 17. Uh, it says, These Jews, that's the Jews from Berea, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Well, what's being described there is pretty straightforward. The people had access to the scriptures in their own language, and they compared, this is what they were doing, the Bereans, they were comparing everything Paul was claiming about Jesus against the Old Testament scriptures. The contrast to the practice of the medieval church saying, no, 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 we'll tell you what it says, you stay away, could not be greater. Furthermore, Paul encouraged his letters to be read to the whole congregation and his other letters as well. Colossians 4, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So clearly the the apostolic prescription for the church was an immediate and intimate familiarity with the scriptures. The very thing the Roman Catholic Church kept from the people and then excommunicated and killed those who fought against it. There can be no righteous defense for the evolution of the church from the transparency of the early centuries to the secrecy of the 14, 15, 16th century. There is only the possibility that, as Jude describes, certain men have crept in to places of authority and have leveraged the things of God for selfish gain. And so, it was according to these shared convictions that the Reformers challenged the authorities, challenged their excesses and their abuses. And when the Roman Catholic Church could not be reformed due to the hardness of the hearts of wicked popes and cardinals and bishops and everyone who stood to gain from the system, the reformers established local churches untethered to the authority and financial oversight of this 
apostate religious institution known as the Roman Catholic Church. As they did this, they also began to write what is called a catechism. Okay? So that's, that's how we got to something like this, a catechism. So that's a bit of history. I could not possibly, as you know, summarize, you know, 1,300 years of church history in a few paragraphs. But that's, that's if you will, what, what got us to the point of the burden to establish something like an oral teaching tradition that anyone could learn, no matter your age or literacy level, to re-educate the people of God whom had been starved of the scriptures, their truth, their true interpretation, and their true application for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the question then comes, why this, why now? Right? Why are we doing this? Why have the elders of Hillcrest Baptist Church approved this idea uh, to spend a year walking through these questions? Well, uh, the purpose of a catechism is, again, to systematically educate the Christian. Uh, Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. These are familiar words to many of us, right? Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, come on, transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The implication of Paul's writing is that you will not be able to discern what is good, what is acceptable, what is the will of God, what is pleasing, without the aforementioned transformation of the mind. Now, the purpose of catechizing, then, an entire church body is twofold. Number one, the basic truths of the gospel should always be welcome points of meditation for the Christian. Okay? I don't want to say it again. Um, the basic truths of the gospel should always be welcome points of meditation for the Christian. Uh, we are never too mature, too educated, too spiritually developed to be beyond savoring the sweet nectar, if you will, right, of the truth of the foundations of our faith. So that's the first reason why something like this would be beneficial. Um, because for many of you, a lot of it will be review. Okay? That's all there is to it. Uh, but the Christian uh, can savor uh, the gospel. Number two, the second reason for catechizing an entire church body in a way like this. Well, I'll say three. The second reason is when Calvin was doing this in Geneva, it was for the children. But the parents started listening, going, wow, this is good stuff. And the whole church wound up coming to what was supposed to be the kids' catechism class. Isn't that fascinating? And then Zwingli watched what was happening with Calvin in Geneva, and he went, wow, this is remarkable. And he went home and did the same. Unless I'm getting some of these names mixed up, but I think I got it right. It might have been someone else. But it... So there's something sweet about the, the tradition right there of just you, you think about this 
500 years ago, John Calvin was doing this same thing with the whole church. Anyway, that's an aside. The second reason that's actually in my notes is uh, because of what I call theological potholes. Theological potholes. Uh, By dint of our experience, um, by dint of our upbringing, our exposure in the home and in Christian education, everyone is going to be more or less educated in various biblical tenets. Right? We all have different experiences, different backgrounds. We grew up in different style churches. I went to my dad, my dad's church. I went to my dad's home church when we would go to West Virginia on vacations. And it was, um, it was this, this little chapel and we sang these, like, these wonderful old hymns like Old Rugged Cross. And all the men knew the, like, the low echo parts and, uh, and it was sweet. And they had like the, you know, the attendance numbers and everything was wood, right? It is a classic country church, you know? And some of you grew up like that. And others of you grew up like absolute, like heathens, you know? <laughs> With just nothing. And you were introduced to the gospel when you were, you know, fully grown. So the difference in someone's experiences as a child leading up to the age of 30, you're going to have different potholes, right? Different levels of education. And so by dint of that, we are all going to have these different areas of of strength, if you will, and different areas of weakness. The bits of our education and practice that are underdeveloped have a tendency to cause us to trip up and stumble in the road of the Christ life. Either we will continue to like swerve around these ideas that we do not understand. We avoid them because they're hard, they're challenging. Maybe they butt up against uh, preconceived notions that are partially biblical, perhaps. Um, Or we just simply continue on through a Christian experience with these lacking areas of education and they continually cause us to stumble. So we've got these, what I call, spiritual potholes. Uh, This is how Packer described the same concept. Uh, He says, because we have lost the practice of catechesis today, quote, superficial smatterings of truth, blurry notions about God and godliness... And thoughtlessness about the issues of living, career-wise, community-wise, family-wise, and church-wise, are all too often the marks of the evangelical congregation today. Superficial smatterings of truth, blurry notions about God and godliness, and thoughtlessness about the practical outworking of Christian life. And there's a reason for that, right? It's because of those Spiritual potholes. And so a catechesis is systematic enough to ensure that no matter your potholes, uh, by the time we work our way through all the questions, they will have been, if you will, filled in. Of course, once and done is never the biblical prescription. Isaiah 28, 13 talks about this precept by precept, line by line, word by word. This is the idea of of, uh, um, meditating on and Um, loving the law of God as David describes it. So it's never once and done. It's always precept by precept, line by line. And so we won't do this every year at Hillcrest on Wednesday nights, um, but even still, you should be convinced at the end of this journey that a yearly catechesis is valuable for continually filling in potholes 
and maintaining and building on that which you do know. Um, Because we are fallen creatures living in a fallen context, uh, no education or spiritual growth will be static. In our fallen existence, we are all subject to the second law of thermodynamics that says everything is breaking down. That table is turning into dust slowly because our world is fallen. Um, And that also means the education and the transformation of our minds spiritually is, is, is decaying. We're forgetting. We're right now forgetting the memory verses we memorized last year. Because our minds aren't perfect. They are subject to the fall of sin and the second law of thermodynamics. So what do we have to do? Uh, well, we have to continually refill, right? So those spiritual potholes are not once filled and done. We must continue to work, if you will, on that road to continue the metaphor. Lastly on um, why this, why now. Um, the church in America has been on what I call a 100-year de-reformation trajectory. A de-reformation trajectory. Um, the Reformation was necessary because the clergy had hidden the truth of God's word from the people of God. You, you might say the people wanted it, and the clergy said, no, you can't have it. Just do what I say instead. And the church in America has, has um, sadly... Um, we have access to the most information of any culture, any population in the history of mankind. And yet at a time when we have access to the most information and the most intimate ability to access the scriptures and sound teaching on them, uh, the church at large is surrendering that right. And just listening to snake oil salesmen tell them what the Bible means. Like all the progress that was gained, painfully so, by the reformers, to give the people access to the truth. Now in the height of the information age, the church is slowly surrendering. And listening listening to crooks in pulpits. Just do what I tell you, it says. Don't worry about reading it or comparing my words against it. What a tragedy, right? I mean, Jan Hus, one of the earliest of reformers, his writings confronting the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, his writings were used as fuel for the fire that burned him at the stake. That's what was given so that we could have the Bible in our hands. And so it is a, a tragedy. It is a tragedy, the, um, the uneducating of the church. After the Reformation worked so hard to re-educate the church. When children were memorizing 160 or 110 key Questions and answers as a matter of common practice in the church for three or four hundred years. Something good was really going on. And today, like, they go to church for pizza parties. And they don't know the answer to one catechism question. 
much less 159 more. All right, so again, what was, what was gained through bravery, through the, uh, you know, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and uh, through much pain and toil, uh, has been slowly surrendered. And so that's why. Okay, that's why we're doing this. And, and so while I would love to talk about national revival in America, nothing like a national revival is fueled without first local Revival, family revival. And that, I believe, really does begin with the tenets of the Reformation, uh, which is an emphasis on expositional preaching and catechesis. These are the two things that, you know, launched the church. Well, with that, let's talk about question number one tonight. Question number one in the New City Catechism, which is the 52 questions which we will study together, is this. What is our only hope in life and in death? And uh, I don't see, I think my girls are serving in the kids ministry tonight. I don't see them. They could definitely answer it for you. Anybody know the answer off? Come on, anybody? Oh, David Cook. Give it to me. That's correct. And then the, the larger answer, because for each one there's a smaller and a larger answer. For each, the rest of the answer says uh, that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul in life and in death to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, David. Now, the Westminster Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief aim of man? Yeah, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That one we're a little more familiar with. And the natural follow-up to that question is, number two, what rule has God given to direct us in how we might glorify Him? Right? What's the chief aim? To glorify God and enjoy Him. What rule has God given to direct that? And the answer is the Word of God. Yeah. And then it builds from there. This is a great way to begin. If you're going to talk about... The foundation of an educational system, what is man's primary reason for being here? Why did God create us? To bring him glory and to enjoy him. And then what rule has God given to direct how to do that? Right? Because otherwise we're left up to our own interpretation. I'm here to glorify God. So what do we do? I mean, some of us would say stuff like, well, let's go shoot some guns, you know? Praise the Lord, all right? I, I, I'm going to refrain from coming up with any spur-of-the-moment wacky examples of how man might wrongfully interpret an idea about how to glorify God on his own. Okay, you get the idea? So it says God's given his word to direct it. It's actually what's called the... Um, it's a principle of... Um, of Reformation worship, ah, and I forget what it's called now. But it essentially says if the Bible doesn't prescribe it or describe it. Somebody has it for me? Thank you. The regulative principle. That's the word I was looking for. The regulative principle in worship. It says, well, if the Bible doesn't describe it or prescribe it as a form of worship, then we probably don't have any business attempting to worship God with it. It's a, it's a safe framework Question number two of the Westminster Catechism. What rule has God given us in how we should glorify Him? Well, He's given us His Word. 
And so you can see how this is an educational system that sort of builds from the ground up and helps to answer questions. Well, can I do this in worship? It's like, well, can you support that biblically? Right? What does it go back to? It always goes back to the catechism question. So that's good. In my opinion, that's a fantastic way to begin. Now, the New City Catechism um, does not begin that way. The New City begins um, with an echo of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is actually older than the Westminster. And that is that same opening question, what is our only hope in life and in death? Um, While both places are good starting points, I am grateful that questions 4, 5, and 6 get around to what is, what is our purpose for being here on the earth. Um, all right, moving on. So we begin this way. We begin on a, a good foundational way. What is our only hope in life and in death that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and death? To God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's, um, let's break down that answer into two, just two simple parts. Now, one, we are not our own. What is your only hope in life and death? You are not your own. Uh, I find with both halves of this answer, both a comfort and a confrontation. A comfort and a confrontation. Uh, I like confrontation. I think, uh, I, think I preach uh, a lot about confrontation. I'm constantly telling you to confront your neighbor and tell them that they're sinners. I, I don't know. I don't know why. Comfort and confrontation. We are not our own. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's a foundational statement. We are the Lord's. Now, in terms of comfort, I find this under two subheadings. Number one, a sense of security. You are not your own. There there is a security in that. Jesus talks in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So what is our only hope in life and in death? Well, that God's strength is great enough to keep you. It's greater than the strength of a crooked government. It's greater than the strength of any sickness. It's greater than the grief of the most horrific type. No matter what life may throw at you in a fallen existence, the Father has you in His hand. That's a comfort to me. It's also not only a sense of security, but a sense of assurance Assurance, 1 John 5, 12 and 13, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you. Look, this is so great. This is, here's John, 
The apostle whom Jesus loved, who, who leaned on Jesus at the Passover meal. And he's later on, decades later, writing to the church at large. He's saying, the reason why I wrote this letter, the reason why this piece of paper or parchment has these inscribed words on them and was painstakingly delivered to you, and you're reading it now, the reason I'm writing to you is that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that a fascinatingly simple statement? I'm writing so that you will know. Now, it's interesting. The word know is the Greek word oida. It is a perfect active verb. Active, meaning it is ongoing. It's living like a running stream, always being resupplied. That's the knowledge the apostle wants for you. Whoever has the Son has life. And I'm writing to you, right? So that you may, in an ongoing, active way, like a living stream of water, constantly be knowing that you have eternal life. There's an assurance that we are not our own, right? These are great comforts, but it's also a confrontation. It's like this. You are not your own. Right? There's, there's different ways to say it, right? We are not our own. Right? And then there's, you don't belong to yourself. Right? right? I mean, I did, a, I did a couple of, like, elective classes in junior high for acting. And I think I just pulled those two emotions off. Uh, Academy Award level, probably. That's confrontation, right? There's comfort, but then there's also confrontation. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. You do not belong to you. You are not free to do as you please with your body. It is not just your soul. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God, both body and soul. Not just soul, not just future, body present as well. It is not just your soul that was saved eternally. It was also your physical dwelling. Therefore, you have an obligation to honor your God with your body. How you eat, how you work, how you exercise or don't, what you look at, what you use your hands for, where you allow your feet to take you, what you allow your mouth to say, what you do with sexual desire, career ambitions, where you place your financial sense of security. You are obligated to the one who owns you, who purchased you. With his precious blood. Now we do the question and answer again with that in mind. That we are not our own, but belong with body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? Now this concept of being confronted by this knowledge that we do not belong to ourselves begins vertically towards God. Right? It's our... Our demeanor towards the Lord and His will for us. 
Um, but it eventually goes out horizontally towards fellow man. So first, uh, honor God with your body. But then secondly, uh, you are compelled to serve one another. Because you are members of one another. You are not your own. You have an obligation not only to your Savior, but also to your brother and your sister. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, one body, but has hands and elbows and knees and stomachs and mouths and ears, right? One body, many parts, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. You are compelled to honor your brother or your sister in the Lord by not being united to them in sexual intimacy outside the boundaries of, that God has established in heterosexual monogamous marriage covenant. And as much as you belong to Christ, you belong to each other. You owe each other the benefit of your compassion, your service, your skill set, your generosity, and so on. You owe each other these things. Now, the only way that this concept gets turned on its head is when we say, you owe me, right? You, you will meet with me. You will talk to me, right? That's when it gets turned up on its head. And I've seen that, and it's like a poison. The obligation to one another is meant to spring from a grateful heart outward, not from a selfish demand inward. Paul says to Titus, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. You can't possibly show perfect courtesy as you demand something from another person, right? But we can, with grateful hearts, remind ourselves, I am not my own, you know? My brother, my sister, they need encouragement, they need help. I watched as people picked up trays for other people tonight. One person is sitting in conversation and another person is gathering their stuff and taking it to the trash, why? Is that person sitting in conversation? Are they infirmed? Are their legs not working? Are they just ancient and frail? No. No, no. Just the one says, hey, I, I owe my brother or my sister this simple act of service. Right? We are not our own. But we belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, the alternative to this is we are our own. I can do whatever I want because I am my own. I don't answer to anyone. First uh, Peter 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What's Peter seeking to do? He's simply seeking to, to motivate us to action with the springboard always being the blood of Christ shed for us. Right? Yeah. The world says you are your own. You can decide your identity. You can chase your dreams. You can follow your heart. Uh, but the scriptures, this is, this is what I love. 
the scriptures call us to a much nobler existence. Right? That you might exist for the benefit of someone else. And see, that's where biblical manhood is such an important thing. See, when a, when a young man takes up the mantle of husbandhood, if that's a word, husbandry, I don't know, being a husband, and, and taking on the responsibility of being a father who provides, should the Lord will this for them, right? Should the Lord bless them with such an obligation and gift? He is taking up the, the, the most right picture of manhood in creation, because he suddenly does not live for himself anymore. Up to that point, you can live for you. Your ambitions, your dreams, your games, your money, your cars. In my case, your guitars, right? Of which I had many and would have many more. Yet instead, I have all of these little people who eat all my money. Right? No, but this is it. This is the man. What is he doing? He's saying, I don't live for me. I live now for you. In fact, many cases at the expense of myself. And this is not a, a drudgery, men. Right? It is a nobility to live for the good of others. And the Christian, whether you are young or old, male or female, takes up that same noble existence in obedience to this simple catechism question. Which brings us to the second half of the answer. We belong to God. Now a lot of this was already you know, addressed because you can't really talk about one without the other. But simply put, we belong to God. Again, comfort and confrontation. Comfort. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about the spirit of the world, the spirit of Antichrist that's out in the world. You've overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What is our only hope in life and death? That you are not your own. You belong to God. That's a great comfort. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Therefore, is there any fear that should really shake you? Is there any potential calamity that should really rattle you to the core? It ought not. Why? Because we are not our own. We belong to God. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. My dad taught me how to work with my hands uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I would stand out in the garage with him and he would run boards through the table saw and uh, spit splinters in my face and I'd say, ah, dad. And he'd say, well, squint, you know? <laughs> because this generation is soft with their safety goggles, right, dad? Yeah. God gave you eyelashes. Squint, boy. Sorry. We don't have time for... Uh, but one of the things my dad helped me do when I was grown, we, we went back to that same workshop. <sighs> and I'll, I'm going to do my best to share this without getting emotional. Just, just, we don't have time for me to cry and slow down. So, uh, Leslie and I lost a little, a little baby at about 20 weeks. And so, uh, so I, I went to my dad, and I think as part of the grieving process, 
Now, my dad helped me build a little casket. Uh, and we put his remains in the little casket, you know. And it was good. It was helpful. It was necessary, right? And, and I, uh, I distinctly remember being very concerned, you know, about getting the details just right. You know, like get that piece of trim just right and tape that and glue that and tack that. And, and if it wasn't perfect, start again with that piece. You know, my dad was really patient with me. And, but the point is, um, this, this, um, this thing, you know, that I was making, you know, it mattered to me. It was important to me. Because it, it held the other thing that I had helped to make, you know, that was then taken from us. And I, I cherished that moment, you know, and that thing. And I'm a selfish punk. And I can care about something else that much as I'm making it. How much more does our perfect Father in heaven care about us as he's crafted us? Uniquely, distinctly, every hair on your head. Everyone's fingerprint is different. Your eye scan is unique. Your voice sounds like no one else's. This is a great comfort that we belong to God. We are His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. In life He is with us and in death He will catch us. The Pilgrim's Progress has this great image of of, uh, Pilgrim, a Christian, eventually going through the waters of death. It's portrayed as like a wall of water. And there's there's a moment of faith that is required to plunge yourself into certain death. And the guide is there telling you, he'll, he'll catch you. Just go on. <laughs> it's a great comfort. We are not our own, but we belong to God. In life, he is with us, and in death, he will catch us. But that you belong to God is also a confrontation. right? Comfort and confrontation. Calvin in the, uh, the commentary section of the New City Catechism, if you don't have the app or the book, the app is free. It has the questions and the answers, one for each week of the year. And there's a little section in there with commentary for each question. Some of them are from, from newer authors that contributed to this, like Tim Keller, and others are ancient. I like this from John Calvin, but this is it. I love this because I like things that challenge me. Um, He says, we are gods, meaning apostrophe S, ownership, right? Not we are gods. Each time, I want to make that clear. We are gods. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods. Let Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction. It's great. You are not your own. You belong to the God who purchased you. Bodhi Balkum says, you don't get to use him for your purposes. He gets to use you for his. Your strength does not belong to you. It was purchased by the blood of Christ.
Your intellect did not belong to you. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. Right? Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't it not a great uh, comfort and confrontation to know that an eternity passed before the stars were spoken into existence and before the first man or woman was created, that God looked forward to 2024 and he planned good works for each of you? And you would think no one could possibly think that far ahead about that many potentially billions of people. Well, no one could except God, right? And so because his intellect knows no bounds, his foreknowledge has no limitations, he looked into your calendar year, your week, and he planned good things for you. Now, what if instead you're doing your own thing? Right? Now, I want to get into a debate about the providence of God, right, and his sovereign oversight over all things, including our free will, because that says, right? But just generally speaking, okay, as a, as a point of practical application, how about instead of, instead of doing the good works that God planned for you, I'm too busy gossiping with my neighbor, I'm perusing the dark corners of the internet, Right? I'm pursuing things that are selfish and self serving. And then God says, I have this thing planned for you. You see? We are not our own, we belong to God. It's a great comfort, but it's also incredibly confrontational. Well, the big idea here. Um, is centered around that word hope. Right? Hope is found, and hope is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? Because these words don't automatically apply to every human being ever created who is born or alive today. That we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to Christ. No, they don't. Hope. What is our only hope in life and in death? It is to belong. To him. Yeah? The idea of hope or only hope is a complete lack in alternatives, as in, if this doesn't work, I don't know what I'm gonna do. In the face of no viable options, I bet my life on something or someone else. Or I can't get myself out of this mess. That's where hope. Supplies. And it's in these moments when perhaps we're saying this to ourselves I can't get myself out of this mess. I've got to rely on someone or something else. And if this someone or something else doesn't come through, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's in these moments that the catechesis is our teacher. Leslie shared a story this week, and I'll read it for you and then, and then conclude because we're out of time. Um, uh, some of you, I'm sure, read this on, uh, on the interwebs. One beautiful spring day in 2018, I was playing outside with my children in the driveway. It's my wife's words again. 
The phone rang and the call was my mom letting me know that her brother-in-law, my uncle, had been in a terrible accident. And she wasn't sure if he had made it, but that it was really, really bad. My kids could tell from the questions that I was asking that something terrible had happened. I hung up the phone with a promise from mom that she would update me as soon as she had more information. The kids immediately wanted to know what was wrong. I told them what I knew. We all sat down and were just stunned. No one said anything for a few minutes as we all processed the news. And then a quiet voice came from my 10-year-old daughter. What is our only hope? In life and in death. And together, we stated the answer to the catechism question that we had recently committed to memory as a family. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In that moment, the truth of these words was a balm to our fears. We were putting into practice in a moment of darkness what we knew to be true in moments of light. In the moments where life was simple and easy and we were going about our normal lives, we had prepared ourselves with doctrinal truth that came to us in a moment of great need. Along with the scripture we had memorized and the hymns we had sung, we later learned my uncle had survived, but we were so thankful for truth that comforts while we were waiting. Yeah. Well, that's my best pitch, right, for why we're doing this. And so I hope that you'll join me this year in engaging it wholeheartedly and with hearts of gratitude. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Um, thank you for these organized systems of education that have been formulated by um, uh, the heroes of our faith, by great men whom you've called and whom you've educated to use their minds for your good and for the good of your church, to assimilate the scriptures topically, to teach us and to help us to learn and be reminded of where our true hope lies, and the foundation of everything that we hold dear, and our hope of eternity. May this year these truths be buried deep into our minds and therefore into our hearts. By your grace, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's stand just for one minute, stretch our legs, and then we're going to enter into a, a time of corporate prayer.